Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Four-week series in the book of Jonah, and we're calling it Finish the Mission, not just because Jonah had a mission to finish, but because we do. And we've been talking about our calling to take the gospel to all nations and to be a part of that as goers or senders. And during this series, we've been praying that God would give us a heart, stir our heart, give us his heart for the nations, and stir us to want to give ourselves completely to God's global mission like Lorian is, is doing here and like the Vandenbergs have done in the past. And, and so... Um, whether that's that God would call you to be a sender, a sacrificial sender, somebody that goes, I will be a partner with you. I will pray for you. I will finance this. I will go with you in spirit and, and be there for you to do it. Or whether that would mean that you yourself would be a sacrificial goer. And maybe that won't be for the rest of your life. Maybe it'll be for six months, a year. Maybe it'll be four years. Maybe it'll be longer. But we're wanting to put that before you because we want to be the kind of church that that has people that send and go. And, and we won't be that kind of church unless we're the kind of church that focuses on the mission. We have to remind each other of this. It's very easy for us to get our, lost in our own little world and not think about the nations. Um, I was struck by when Jim and Melissa were um, sharing last week about their 10 years in Africa and their year in Indonesia as missionaries. And I, I was struck by the fact that they mentioned that our church was a, a missions-focused church. Our church was a church that talked about missions and had missionaries share their stories and all these things, and that stirred us up to go. And I was thinking about Hudson Taylor, who was, lived in the 1800s and who was one of the early missionaries to China, and his church must have been missions-focused, or his family was, because at five years of age, Hudson Taylor said, when I'm a man, I want to go and be a missionary to China. A little bit later in his life, as he was a young man, he said this, he said, I feel that I cannot go on living unless I do something for China. God had just given him this burden for this. And then when he went and he was a missionary, he was an older man, he had spent decades in China, he said this, if I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all to China. Isn't that awesome? Just to think about that. That's the kind of desire for the nations we want us to be stirred with, whether we're senders or we're goers. So here we are back in Jonah. We're in chapter 3. And where are we in Jonah? Well, we're really back to the beginning. If you look at uh, the beginning of chapter 3, it sounds a lot like chapter 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, remember that God had called Jonah to leave his home in Israel and go 500 miles um, to the northeast to Nineveh, which is where modern-day Mosul, Iraq is now. And he was called to do that, but he didn't do that, right? He rebelled. He went completely the opposite direction. He went southwest. His intention was to go 2,000 miles in the opposite direction by ship. But, of course, God didn't allow that, right? There's this huge storm that comes. He gets in, ends up being thrown overboard. And then the Lord, not letting him die in his rebellion, sent some sort of sea creature to swallow him up, contain him, kind of cruise around with him for three days. And then it says at the end of chapter 2, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him. And and then at the end of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out on dry land. I love the vomited. It's not just like, let him go. It like expelled him, right? And so he vomits him out on this beach. Jonah's rebellion, guys, had gotten Jonah nowhere. Literally nowhere. Um, Jonah is back where he started. He's probably vomited up somewhere on the Mediterranean coast. And you guys have probably seen depictions of Jonah being vomited up right at Nineveh. 
And the people are like, oh my gosh, you know, like, and, and that's probably not what happened. Now, Nineveh is not a coastal city. Nineveh is inland in Iraq. There is the Tigris River that runs up near it. And you could say, well, maybe, you know, God had the sea creature you know, swim him up the Tigris and then expel him right into, you know, Nineveh for a grand entrance. The problem with that is, is geographic. There's a significant problem with that. We've got a map here. But um, if you look at the map of where, where Nineveh is here, the, the Tigris River, which comes down along Nineveh, it doesn't actually um, spill into the Mediterranean, okay? So he's in the Mediterranean over here. He's, he's, he's west of Israel, some in the water. He gets expelled on the coast. And to get to Nineveh, he has to go up the Tigris. But the Tigris doesn't drain into the Mediterranean. It drains into the Persian Gulf, okay? So if you wanted to do that trip now, not to bore you with geography, maybe it's too late, um, you come down, now you'd go through the Suez Canal, right, where it says Joppa. There's a Suez Canal that goes down into the Red Sea and comes around. Then there's the Arabian Sea, and then you could come up. You see a little bit of the Persian Gulf. Go up the river there, the Tigris River, and be expelled. That'd be a long trip. It's longer today because there is no Suez Canal back when Jonah was around. There was no Suez Canal. So the only way to get there by fish or boat would be to go all the way out the Mediterranean, into the Atlantic, all the way down around Africa, come up, get into the Arabian Sea, go to the Persian Gulf, then take the trip up the river. Probably not the way he went, okay? Um, probably not the way he went. All that to say is that he's most likely vomited up somewhere on the shore of the Mediterranean. And so he's, he got nowhere. He's got this long walk to go now where he should have started. He's back to the beginning. He's got an over 500-mile trip. And so there's a big gap here, guys, between chapter 2 and chapter 3. He gets vomited out and then him actually getting to Nineveh is a long trip, which, guys, is a graphic illustration of the fact that sin gets us nowhere, right? Sin gets us nowhere. Jonah, think about this. He had paid a lot of money for a 2,000-mile boat trip, okay? A lot of money. He paid the fare. He gets nowhere, right? He, he doesn't even have anything to show for it. And Spurgeon said this. Isn't sin that way? Isn't sin that way? It never pays. Does sin ever pay? It always costs. It costs Jonah a lot. He's just a little poorer, you're right, And he's a lot stinkier than he was before. Spurgeon said this. He said, not even in this world does sin pay its servants a good wage. Not even in this world does sin pay its servants a good wage. But there's another way to look at these first few verses too. And the other way to look at it is through the lens of grace. What a beautiful second chance Jonah has here. It's almost the exact same wording. So Jonah does this huge rebellion. It's not a little deal for a prophet to rebel in this way. And then what? Chapter 3 is a total restart. It says, then the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. I wonder how many times he would have done it with him. Then the word of the Lord came a third time. You know, like how many times are we going to do this, Jonah? But he gives him a fresh start. And it sounds just like the beginning. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I will tell you. But this part's new. Then Jonah arose and went. The guys, the God of the Bible is a God of second chances and third chances and 500th chances. I just love that. I love how this chapter starts with a fresh start. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, it says this. You can begin again as if nothing had ever gone wrong. White as snow. It's true, you know. I love that. That's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the one that the word of the Lord came a second time. You can put your name in there and said this. Now do it. Jonah's back on mission. This morning we're going to look at Jonah's impossible mission. We're going to look at its surprising success. And then we're going to look at what's its underlying power. Like what was the power behind this success Jonah had that seems completely miraculous. First, the impossible mission. For a couple of weeks, I've been talking about how Jonah had a, a um, completable and clear mission, right? He had a completable and clear mission, and he could complete this. It's walk to Nineveh, say these words, leave, completable, 
right? We have a completable mission. There are 6,405 unreached people groups. The Lord has told us to take the gospel to every nation. That's something that could be done. But the question might be asked, but will it work, right? It's one thing to take a message somewhere. It's another thing for people to respond. Will it work? You know, we don't have the means within ourselves to make it work. When Lorian goes and works with these people and, and helps bring the gospel to these people, will it work? This is something completely outside of our hands. It was completely outside of Jonah's hands. Look at verse 3. It says, Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Uh, literally, the Hebrew reads there, a visit took three days. It's not saying that it took like three days to walk across the city, right? Okay, these guys walked everywhere. They're good walkers. <laughs> it wouldn't take three days for Jonah to walk across it. What it's saying is that a visit took three days. That It's the kind of city it would take three days to visit. You know, it takes three days to take it in. In a diplomatic way, if somebody was coming as an envoy, it would take three days to really deal with that city. This is a city of importance. This is a, 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 the capital of a superpower. This is the capital of Assyria, which was a superpower in that day. This is a city of significance and power and security. And so you might think to yourself, how is Jonah just going to walk in there and say, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed, and these people that live in this massively secure city are going to go, oh no, right? Is that going to work? Are they going to be like thinking that like this guy knows something about our future. And you also have to think about that Nineveh is a radically evil city. Radically evil city. If you look at verse 8, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hand. Guys, the Ninevites were brutal, brutal, notoriously brutal people. The Assyrians would kill their enemies in the most painful and creative ways. I won't go into detail now. Maybe we'll say that for Mother's Day. But um, they would have very creative ways of, of destroying and killing their people and inflicting fear. And they had this violent way of thinking, and they're stuck in that violent way of thinking. You ever met people that are stuck in their thinking? They've done this for generations. They don't think anything of this. They don't think anything of the atrocities that their nation does. They were a violent people. And so are we really to think Jonah's just going to walk in there and tell them they're evil, call them out on their sin, and they're going to be like, oh, we're sorry. We didn't know. Thank you, random Hebrew guy. Like, we're so sorry. We'll repent. Like, this doesn't seem like this is going to work, does it? It doesn't seem like this work. And, and remember, too, this man. So he's kind of a foolish message. He's also a foolish messenger. This is a guy that looks real rough, okay? He's been through a lot. He's not looking good when he pulls into town. And... He doesn't want to go. He still doesn't want to go. If you look at chapter 4, we'll find out he doesn't want them to repent and be saved. Okay? So this is a bad missions plan. This is one, like, unlike Lorian's, this is one where you go, like, I don't know if I want to support this. So we've got this message that's culturally completely inappropriate. We've got this guy who's shown himself to be a real mess up already. And we know for a fact he doesn't want to go and he doesn't want him to be saved. Can you imagine talking to Lorian? like, yeah, I'm going, but pff, I hope nobody believes. That's what this guy's like. That's the plan. We're not financing this kind of a guy, right? And so, um, but what happens? Look at the unexpected success. So that's the impossible mission. What about the unexpected success? Look at verse 4. Then Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called out for a fast and put on sackcloth, the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let the man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Guys, verse 4 is the most unexpected verse in this book. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed. It's shocking, right? Why is this happening? This is the greatest miracle that actually happens in this book is not how this guy got swallowed by a sea creature and some of these other things that happen in here. It's just these people believed. They shouldn't have, but they do. Picture it, guys. Picture that after making his 500-mile trip on land, probably walking, I don't know, he, he gets there to the town. Maybe it's nighttime. He has to wait for the massive gates to open. They wouldn't be closed at night. These massive gates open. And remember, we talked about before that archaeologists have said that the walls were probably 100 feet high. Jews think, like, how do the ancient people do these things? 100 foot high, I know you're looking up. You're like, how high is that? I don't know. It's just crazy. And then the walls would be thick. They were so thick that three chariots could cruise along the top at the same time. I don't know how many bricks that takes. A lot, okay? But keep in mind, these are brutal people. They have their ways. So he gets there. Maybe he got there at night. He has to wait for the gates to open. Finally, in the morning, the gates open. He goes through these massive walls. He sees this, like, amazing architecture. It's like, I'm not in Jerusalem anymore. You know, it's, it's huge. This is a, a massive superpower-type city. And he sees people haggling in the marketplace, doing their business, right? And, and he sees soldiers marching around town. And he would have seen shepherds bringing in their livestock to market and traders coming in and out. This is a powerful, massive, bustling ancient city. And then Jonah walks in, little Jonah. He walks in, and he's like, all right, Whew, guess it's go time. And he, he walks in there, and he says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what happens? And not what you'd expect. You'd expect they're going to, like, ignore him, roll their eyes, right? Maybe beat him up, you know, certainly heckle him. What do they do? The whole town melts in fear. The whole town melts in fear. They go silent. They listen. They're shocked by what he's saying. Uh, they begin weeping. Probably women start to clutch their children in dread, like, what's going to happen to my family? Right? They believe him. And they start to cry out, probably, well, what must we do to be saved? How can we avoid this? What in the world is happening here, guys? I mean, this is by far the greatest mass conversion in all of history to this date. And keep in mind, these are, this is not a revival of backslidden people that used to follow the Lord and they kind of drifted and now they're coming back. These are full-on, ruthless, notorious pagans that have never heard the name of Yahweh. This is the first time they've ever heard anything about him. And they're just like, all right, we surrender. It's crazy. It's amazing. What explains this? We'll talk about in a moment what explains this. Like, what is the power that causes this to happen? But first, I want you guys to see the repentance that happened here. Because this is probably the greatest example of repentance in the Bible. And repentance is critical for us to understand because repentance is how we get saved, right? Repentance is the way we came to the Lord. Um, Peter, when he preached his first uh, sermon at Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the first word of the gospel. Repent. Right? Repentance is also the way that we live as Christians. You know, we don't just believe once and repent once, and then we kind of live our Christian life without belief and repentance, right? Our whole life is a life of repentance. Um, Luther, when he nailed the 95 uh, complaints that he had against the church at that time to the church door in Wittenberg, which was celebrate the 500th anniversary of that this Halloween. But the, one of his first, in one of his first complaints, he had this statement. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended the entire life of believers should be repentance. Our whole life's about repentance. We don't just, we don't, we don't, just like we don't stop believing, we don't stop repenting. Every time we come before God's word, it's an opportunity for us to believe again and repent again. 
You guys ever feel like that? You ever feel like you get saved over and over again throughout the week? You know, you, you drift and then you repent. You turn from your sin and you trust in him again. And, and, and it's a process of doing that. Um, we're called believers. We often talk, hey, is she a believer? Is he a believer? That kind of thing, right? We could be called repenters, you know? So is she a repenter? Is he a repenter? Christians are repenters. Thirdly, repentance is our call for global missions. In Luke 24, Jesus said that his gospel of repentance and forgiveness would be preached to all nations. So what is repentance? What do we mean when we think about repentance? Repentance means to turn. To repent is to turn. It's to turn away from your sins so that you can trust in Jesus. Um, and it's a change of mind about sin. It's a change of mind about Jesus that leads to a change of heart and a changed life. It's a change where we stop trusting in sin and we stop trusting in ourselves and we put ourselves, trust completely in the faithfulness of God. And chapter 3 here illustrates five ways, uh, thrive um, illustrations of what repentance is like. First, you can see in verse 4 that repentance, guys, is a collision with the word of God. That's what happened to these people. They had a collision with the word of God. You look at that in verse 4. Jonah calls out the word of God and they believe it. The word stopped them dead in their tracks, didn't it? Words stopped them dead in their tracks. It, it pierced them to the heart. It cut them to the heart. I, I don't know how many of you guys have been arrested, um, but many of you have been pulled over, right? <laughs> many of you have been pulled over. I actually got pulled over one time by the fishing game. We got patted down and stuff like that. I can tell you that story later. <laughs> but keep in mind, you need a license to catch geckos in the desert. I'll tell you that story later. Um, you might not know that. Um, but if, if you've ever been pulled over, you know what that feels like. You're driving down, and all of a sudden you see the red and the blue light, and you're like, ah. Oh. And what you can't do when you're pulled over is say, hey, I got a lot of places to go. That's why I'm driving so fast. Can we do this later? Right? That doesn't work, you know? That doesn't work. You've been pulled over. Guys, these people have been arrested by the word of God. Have you ever been arrested by the word of God? Have you ever had the word of God hit you in such a way that you just can't go on with life as usual? You can't say, oh, Lord, you know, hey, let's deal with this later. I'm kind of busy. You stop, right? That's what happened to these people. They can't just move forward as life as usual. Maybe that's happened to some of you. Even in the last few weeks or months, as you're hearing God's word, you can't move on with life as usual. If this is true, everything's got to change. I've got to deal with the Lord. Real repentance is a collision with the word. Also, real repentance has a change of mind. Look at verse 5. It says that the Ninevites, it says that they believed. Repentance and faith always go together. I think there's some confusion about this, but repentance and faith always go, always go together. It's like two sides of one coin. When you repent, you believe, and when you believe, you repent. Um, to really repent, you have to believe. You, know, you have to believe something about Jesus. You have to believe something about sin. You have to believe something about what Jesus has done for it to repent. And if you're really believing, you're going to repent. They go together. It's like this. It's like... It's like when you're living in sin, you've got your sin, and you're holding on to your sin, and you're grasping it, and you're hoping, like, this thing's going to make me happy. This thing's going to make my life good, right? And then you hear the call of Jesus from the other side, right? And so you drop that thing, and you turn, and you take hold of Jesus, okay? This is faith, to take hold of Jesus, to cling to Jesus, um, to, to, to uh, just totally put your whole faith in his faithfulness and his goodness and his forgiveness to find your joy in him, to cling to him, right? That's what faith is. It's a, it's a spiritual clinging to Jesus. Well, you can't do that without turning away from this. The turning is the repenting. The clinging to Jesus is the faith. They go together. There's no way to like, so um, Jesus, you know, like there's no, you know, how do I work this? You know, you can't work that. Repentance and faith go together. Can't have one without the other. Repentance also crushes your heart. Look at verse 5. Did you see the mourning here? It says they were fasting. 
It says they were, uh, which is a way of showing their mourning, their, their sorrow for their sin, their fasting, their desperation. It says they put on sackcloth. You know what sackcloth is, right? Like, kind of like a burlap bag. It's itchy, right? They take out their normal clothes. They put on sackcloth. It's itchy. You don't feel comfortable in it. It reminds you of, of your sin. It reminds you of the thing that you're concerned about, what you're mourning over. Um, it shows that they were no longer comfortable in their sin. Have you been in that situation where there were certain sins that you felt like, you know, everybody does this, it's not a big deal. You had your justifications, but then all of a sudden you're not comfortable in it anymore, right? They've got this sackcloth on. They're not comfortable. Uh, it says the king sat down in an ash heap. It's such dramatic ways of showing things. What's that about? It's, well, it's about, I've made my life a ruin, you know? I've tried doing this on my own, and I've basically made my life an ash heap, you know? He's sitting in those ashes, realizing he's ruined his life. Look at verses 7 through 8. Even the animals repent. Not really. But the people, they put little jackets on them of sackcloth and stuff like that. What are they doing there? They're doing this to say, hey, our whole life's yours. Like, we're surrendering the entire place. We're surrendering the farm. <laughs> we're surrendering the herds. We're surrendering our whole lives. Like, we mean business. And so they make, I don't know how long this would take. I mean, you have a lot of sheep. You're making them little outfits. You're putting them on. They don't really want them on. It's crazy. Anyway, spend too much time on that, perhaps. Um, it, repentance is also about specific sins. Look at verse 8. He says, the king says that they should turn from their evil ways and the violence in their hand. That was their specific sin in their culture. They were a very violent people. Um, and, and maybe that's happened to you, that specific sins are now bother you. Perhaps you weren't bothered before by your gossip, you know? You're thinking, well, I'm just kind of relaying what's going on, helping people to pray, you know, kind of a thing. No, like, you realize, I'm a gossip, you know, and you keep on finding things, and you go, like, maybe that's gossip, too. Oh my, it is gossip, you know? I've been doing that, too. Or maybe it's judging other people, you know? You just kind of, that's your kind of hobby inside of you. Nobody sees it, but there's this judging of people to make yourself feel better about yourself. Or maybe it's some secret sexual sin. Or maybe it's your anger. You know, you felt so justified to be bitter and angry all the time. You always could kind of find a reason to justify it. And now you're thinking, like, this is straight-up sin. I'm an angry person. This has to change. Uh, or maybe it's lying, you know? Maybe it's, you know, you kind of thought, well, I'm just trying to kind of smooth things over. I'm just trying to keep the peace. And it's like, no, no, this is lying. Or it's unforgiveness. Um, it's a sin that's no longer, the heart is rejecting it. Real repentance is a change of life. It's total surrender. We see that in the king. Take a look at verse 6. I think this is so cool. The king of Nineveh, he's not just king of Nineveh. He's the king of Assyria. And this is a country that dominates multiple other countries. Like, this is a global superpower and it says this when the word of the lord reached the king of nineveh he arose from his throne he removed his robe he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes that's incredible guys it's incredible for a guy like this he could have just said okay like we're a country that follows yahweh now so uh from his throne he didn't do that right he's undone it says that he got took his robe off which is probably nice and silky probably never had anything rough ever touch his skin right takes off his silky robe he puts on sackcloth like everybody else you know, there's nobody that's immune from repentance. And then instead of his throne, he gets up off his throne and he sits on an ash heap instead. This is amazing. Guys, when Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't come as a new consultant. He comes as your new king. <laughs> you know, um, it's said of Genghis Khan that back when he ruled Mongolia that he sent for advisors, Christians, to come to be a part of his court. His thinking was like, well, I need to get advice from everybody. And it would be great for me to have some Christian advice too. Guys, Jesus doesn't come as a consultant for your court. He's not going to come. He's not going to be your advisor. He's going to be your king or he's going to be nothing to you. There's only those two choices. And so this king realizes that. He's like, all right, I'm not king. Yahweh's king. I'm willing to listen to whatever he says. Jesus is a king. 
Kings have to be obeyed. And that's why you can't have Jesus, guys, as your Savior without having him as your Lord. People talk about that a lot, and I kind of understand why, what they mean when they say it. But they say, you know, I accepted Jesus as Savior at this point. And then later on, you know, I decided, you know what? I should make him Lord, you know? And so I started having Jesus as my Lord or my Master. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't come into your life as a consultant or merely a Savior. He's a king. And there's only one throne. And we have to get off the throne, right, so that he can take it. And, and guys, why wouldn't we want him as our king? I mean, this whole image of ashes, like we've kind of made a mess doing it ourselves, haven't we? That's part of repentance is going like, you know what? I thought I knew the way, you know, like Jonah, I thought I knew the way to happiness. Or that, and I just realized, like, I don't know what I'm doing, okay? I just don't know what I'm doing. And that's what we do when we come to Jesus. We, we entrust ourselves to him. We become his disciples, his students, right? And then he teaches us how to do everything he's commanded by the power of the Spirit. He changes our hearts to want to do it. And it is weird to even say that you'd have Jesus as Savior but not Lord because if we're going to trust Jesus with the 10 trillion years of future we have later, why wouldn't we trust him with the next 40? You know what I mean? Like, like okay, you got me for the next 10 trillion years you know, in the new world, but man, I don't know if I can trust you to really make me happy and fulfilled now. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Like we trust him, it's one package, isn't it? So, and lastly, real repentance is... It's blessed beyond imagination. I'm really moved by what the king says. Look at verse 9. He doesn't come entitled to the Lord. He says this. He goes, who knows? Maybe God will relent and turn from his fierce angle. He has no idea. He's a complete surrender. Do what you want. He's a king. He's ruthless. He knows how it goes. Sometimes you surrender, they slaughter you. That's just how it goes. You make it faster, you can make it slower. And so he knows that God is a king. And he goes, you know what? Who knows? Maybe God will relent. I don't know. We're going to do this is the right thing to do. What happens? When Nineveh repents, Yahweh relents. It's not too late. And it's not too late for you either. I think some people later in life, they think, you know, I've lived my life so long this way, there's no changing now. It's not too late. And and real repentance, guys, is blessed beyond imagination. He he doesn't have any idea what's going to happen. He gets complete grace beyond his imagination. Um, God offers us, thankfully, a much clearer promise now. He says, if you repent and believe, you'll be forgiven. You'll become his child, and you'll have this great future in the world to come. I mean, he's given us assurance, you know, this thing that the king, he says, who knows? We know. We know if you were to turn to him today, he would, he would save you as well. But also, guys, our repentance is beyond imagination, too. God said to us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So just like this king was surprised, he's like, oh, I don't know what we're going to get, but let's do this. We don't know what we're going to get to some degree, too. I mean, the joy that's going to come later is going to be beyond our imagination. And so real repentance blesses us beyond our imagination. And I would just ask you this morning, if there's someone here that hasn't really been ready to give up that thing, to drop it, I would ask, what keeps you? You know, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of if you were to say today, you know what, Jesus, you're running this from now on? What what scares you about that? What, What thing is there that you're thinking like, well, I'd be fine with all he says about this, but this area, I just can't give him. Why would you hold back from him today? I love what C.S. Lewis says about it. He says this, the almost impossible thing to do is to hand our whole selves over to Christ. And then listen to this, but it's far easier than what we're all trying to do now. Isn't it? I mean, look at the life of Jonah. It's far easier than what you're trying to do now, especially if you've got one foot in, one foot out. That is the most uncomfortable, awkward, destructive way to live. You know, the one foot in, one foot out. So we saw Jonah's impossible mission. We saw its unexpected success. And lastly, and pretty quickly, I want to talk about what's the underlying power? 
why did the Ninevites repent and believe like that? Why, when he walked in and gave this kind of foolish message, everybody just crumbled, right? What happened? A city of such power and security and so set in their ways. Why did their minds and their hearts and their lives reverse? And this is an important question because as we think about our clear and completable mission, we think about, but will it work? You know, you think about Lorian going to the Middle East and, and what she's going to do there. Like, why should we hope that's going to work? You know, we think about um, Holly in Cambodia, and we're going to do an offering for her next week. But we think about that, like, why should this work? Or you thinking, maybe you're considering missions now, and you're thinking, but I'm so weak and I'm so messed up. You know, how could this possibly work? What is the underlying power for missions? Um, what is the underlying? What caused the Ninevites to repent? Well, some have said that it was the way Jonah arrived. Okay, because everybody's gone like, okay, this is a strange story. Why did they repent? That's the big question. And so you might say, well, it's the way he arrived. If the Ninevites saw Jonah vomited out of a sea creature and they were like, well, he must have the right message because that's crazy. Look at that. Okay. That's what a lot of people have said. But I told you before, the text doesn't say that and geography doesn't support it. He was probably vomited out in the Mediterranean, had to walk 500 miles. So guys, the Ninevites never saw the sea creature and they never saw Jonah exit it. And we come up with stuff like that though, guys, because we find, we feel like we need to explain it. You know, I feel like we need to explain what's the power behind this. I want to submit to you guys that the reason that the Ninevites believed Jonah's message and repented was something other than his unique mode of transportation, okay? I want to submit to you that it's something we still have access today. And that's important because God has not promised us um, like a sea creature entrance to whatever country we're called to go to, right? He hasn't promised us that. It's not as Jesus said, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and here is a culturally appropriate sea creature for you to pop out of. Okay? He doesn't hand those out, right? So we need something else. And for the answer to what the power behind missions is, I want to fast forward 800 years later. I hope that doesn't make you nauseous. We're going to fast forward 800 years later to 49 AD to a city called Corinth and a man called Paul. Another Jewish man walking into a powerful city, Corinth was a sophisticated, educated place. They loved Greek philosophy. They valued eloquence. They were also very set in their sinful ways. And in walks this Jewish man talking about how it's all going to be overthrown. (laughs) Talking about how the judgment of God's coming. And then he starts talking about another Jewish man named Jesus. And he tells these largely Greek audiences, he says to them, yeah, you know, he was executed by capital punishment, by you know, Rome, but he rose again three days later, and if you'll trust in him as Savior and Lord, um, then you'll be saved from the judgment to come. That seems unlikely to work, guys, doesn't it? Coming to a city like that, they're sophisticated, and they're like, what are you? What are you doing here, right? It seems unlikely to work, and yet they believe too. Why? Paul explains it. Six years later, he wrote back to the Corinthians, and he reflected on how he arrived to them and why they believed. He said this, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's what they would have been expecting. Like, if you're going to bring a message to Corinth, it better be solid, it better be intellectual, it better be just amazing in its philosophy. He said, I didn't come that way. I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible wisdom. So he comes with a message they're very unlikely to accept, and he comes in a way that they don't like. They like oratory. They liked eloquent speech. He comes in, he goes, you know, I just came in weakness and trembling and gave you this message. Just like Jonah, it was a message and a messenger unlikely to be believed. And then it says this, Paul said this, 
my speech and my wisdom, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why did the Corinthians repent and believe? It's the same reason the Ninevites repented and believed. It was the power of the Word of God made alive by the Spirit of God. And that's always what it is, guys. That's always what it is. It's, it's the word of God made alive by the spirit of God. And, and the reason why the Ninevites repented was because Paul, sorry, the Corinthians repented was this simple proclamation of the gospel that Paul brought. And he brought it in a very simple way. We think of Paul as a superhero. He says, no, I was just real simple in what I said. I brought the simple message of the gospel. It was empowered by the Holy Spirit and it opened minds and hearts to believe. His message was a message that they wouldn't have thought appropriate. It was a message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a message, guys, it's a message about a king, isn't it? The gospel is a message about a king. The gospel is a message about a king who is far more powerful than the kingdom of Nineveh, right? It's about a king who ruled over way more than the Middle East. It's about a king who rules over the universe, the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. It's about a king who rose up from his throne to live in the ash heap here that our sins have created. It's about a king that didn't just remove his royal robe for sackcloth. On the cross, Jesus Christ removed his royal robe to wear our sins as if they were his own. That's what he put on. Colossians talks about your certificate of debt, your very specific sins from this week, from your whole life. That specific rap sheet in heaven was nailed to the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he wore your debts, he wore your sins as a robe as he was nailed to the cross to pay it all. And the good news that follows is that three days later, God commanded the grave to spit him out, right? Alive and well. He had paid it all. And this king now has returned to his throne in heaven And from there, this king will come, and he will judge the living and the dead. I don't know when this will happen, but this city, too, will be overthrown. Jesus will turn to judge. King Jesus will return. But what he's told us to do in the meantime is he sent us on a mission, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus, the true king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As people from every nation and every tribe and every language will repent and believe. And it's because of the word of God made alive by the spirit of God. And so if, if God's calling you, um, whether it's to bring the gospel across the street to a neighbor or to a family member or to the nations, that's what you have to rely on. You have to rely on the power of the word of God made alive by the spirit of God. I mean, that's what triggered this wide-scale repentance in Nineveh. That's what triggered your repentance, if you remember back. How did you get arrested? It was the word of God, right? And that's what's going to give us the boldness to say, I will finish the mission of the nations. You know, our calling, guys, is to be the feet and the mouth of this message. To bring this message and count on the Holy Spirit to change lives. Let's receive that call, guys. Let's not trust in our own goodness, because I know there's a lot of like, well, you know, people come to faith because they see how good we are, and they want a piece of it. Okay, well, that's a biblical thing, but they come to faith because they're arrested by the word of God, made alive by the spirit of God. I mean, look at Jonah, like, dude's not ready for this, but he brought the word of God, and the spirit of God came. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us a mission that you finish by the power of your spirit as you made it alive, your word. Lord, help us to never doubt the power of your word. 
You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.